Hello and welcome to this rather late July edition of Pod HD. My name's Guy Kiddy, and my apologies for the delay. My guest this month is Abigail Rhodes at the University of Nottingham. She works on the role of conversation in campaigns by social movements. I started off by asking for a more detailed description of the context of these conversations that form the basis of Abigail's research. Yeah, so it's kind of um, conversations, really, I guess, between social movements and broader society, uh, social movements and media, social movements and political parties. Um, Our main focus really is actually on um, language and, and then discourse. So the way in which social movements or how social movements are asking um, for change, uh, whether that be um, through releasing press releases or putting statements on their website, or whether it's creating events such as protests or demonstrations or sort of public gatherings where people discuss particular issues, really. Um, so, yeah, it's very much social movement led. Um, I'm hoping anyway, um, and I suppose the critical theory side of it really kind of comes in um, with with discourse in the the way in which we talk about the world um, can kind of form how we think, how we interact, how we then talk to other people within that within that sort of that that world that we live in. Um, so uh, one example that I have given in the past is is the difference between uh, referring to the president of the United States that's reduced to Potus um, and the so-called ruler of the United States, which has a very different um, abbreviation, which I will leave to listeners' imaginations <laughs> to work it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're looking at a broad range of contexts, and it's kind of this dialogue in, in the broadest sense of um, one yeah. group communicating, maybe not directly in a conversational setting with another, but doing some, some sort of or, or carrying out some sort of activity which generates attention which then in turn generates a, a, a context. A PhD. Um, so, yeah, so I guess it's kind of their narrative. So the way in which they're discussing austerity in relationship to way, say, the news media are discussing austerity to the way in which political parties might be. Um, so there's a, a sort of a big distinction between the 2015 general election, where austerity was kind of absolutely essential. We needed it in order to sort of balance the books uh, and the same in the 2010. And then a different um, sort of narrative in 2017, where austerity, people had gotten tired of austerity. Austerity kind of became a bit more of a, a dirty word, as it were. And so it's looking at how social movements such as the People's Assembly have gone out there and spoken to people, created events and possibly made an impact on the narrative. Um, and I suppose that's another way of kind of looking at discourse as well, really. And are you, are you restricting your work to, to issues or are you looking at politics as well? Because I guess that example you've just been given, well, I don't guess, I know, everyone knows that example you've just given could be applied um, to Jeremy Corbyn, for example, who was written off hook, line and sinker by mainstream media prior to the uh, general election and then surprised everybody with, well, far, far better result than even the most confident pundits predicted. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, my, my sort of conception of politics that I'll be working with really in my thesis and just in generally in general life is it's sort of um, the politics of the everyday, really. So, you know, 
not party politics, but political issues that matter to people in concrete struggles, people who, you know, things need to change um, and um, how best to communicate that. So people like Jeremy Corbyn have actually um, been communicating a different way of looking at how we would balance the books, for example, or different way of talking about austerity um, that previous politicians haven't done up until this point. And actually it was something that both Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell said um, about changing or hoping that the Labour Party might become a bit more of a social movement or find its grassroots again that really piqued my interest um, a couple of years ago when he, he won the leadership election. And that's another sort of inspiration behind my whole PhD thesis, really. Um, uh, and what about the timeline you're looking at? Are you doing a compare and contrast between sort of pre-digital, pre-social media movements and their communication methods? And then by contrast, the way in which uh, social movements gain momentum uh, these days, typically through viral social media campaigns? Um, I won't be. I'm going to um, reduce my focus down to uh, the 2015 and 27 general election. Um, uh, not, not quite campaigns, I suppose, but the campaigns of the social movements in relationship to the presentation of, of austerity as an ideology in the newspapers and then the same uh, austerity as an ideology uh, by political parties. Really. Right. Okay. Just I just mentioned that because it'd be interesting to see. We all we all hear about the so-called echo chamber effect of social mm -hmm. media and how another algorithm wants it detects that you have an interest in a certain or a, or a particular inclination. For example, in politics, you get more of the same, and therefore your views are reinforced. And it'd be interesting to see whether actually what we experience these days is just an exaggeration of what has always happened. If you read mm. the Daily Mail, then you get the yep. Daily Mail. Um, if you have daily meal inclinations and you express those on social media just do you just get a sort of turbo version of the daily mail um or are your views unduly influenced in a specific direction that they wouldn't otherwise be because of that social media effect mm. well uh, th there are quite a few people i think that that have and are continuing to sort of look at the, the social media effect and the echo effect and the filter bubble but i'm really pleased actually that you sort of identified the the whole sort of uh, Daily Mail aspect. I was thinking about this in, in conversation with somebody the other day, actually, that, like you say, if you're inclined to um, think and understand the world, the way in which the Daily Mail portrays it, you will buy the Daily Mail in the same way that if you think and feel the way in which people's assembly might um, describe politics and the way that the world works, you will look at what people's assembly have got to say and why and share that within your networks. So I, I think that's an important um, kind of similarity really to make between social media and regular news media. Um, but I, I'm kind of avoiding going down that sort of social media rabbit hole. Um, a lot of research has been done on that already. Um, I will certainly be exploring how People's Assembly have mobilised um, using social media, using Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Um, yeah, so it will certainly feature, definitely, as yeah. I think it absolutely necessarily has to. It has changed quite a lot, I think, mobilising people at the drop of a hat, whether it be for the People's Assembly or whether it be for, for Corbyn rallies. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, 
times when Jeremy was turning up to marginal seats, there would be quite a flurry of saying, oh, I think he's going to be here. And people were then wanting to go and taking their friends and family and all the rest of it along. So, yeah, I think it's a very useful tool. The uh, I suppose the Jeremy Corbyn effect, it's very difficult to say whether that's down to people being actively drawn to his style of politics or whether it's more a case of people being completely disenchanted with the alternative uh, with with the Tories and uh, having no other option but but to go to (laughs) join the Corbyn cult Um, I guess I guess time will tell on that and uh, Mm. whether or not he maintains his his momentum uh, will will um, reveal the truth I guess of that situation but what really interests me is how how social movements uh, or how successfully social movements are effect, able to affect the kind of change that they envisage. And I, I guess the we find ourselves most uh, demonstrably, most em- emblematically at a real kind of moral juncture at the moment with climate change, where everyone knows mm. that um, you have to change your mode of living. You have to stop driving everywhere or as much, stop flying everywhere or as much and kind of stay, save on energy and cut back the plastic and all of these things we all are aware of. But there's a lack of political and policy input on the one hand. And I think hmm. probably among the general populace, there's a lack of inclination in reality to kind of start making those sacrifices. So where, you know, where is that kind of tipping point where a social movement starts to persuade people uh, where... Uh, that that it is time to make that kind of next moral leap, just as hmm. social movements at the time of William Wilberforce had to t- uh, persuade people that it was time to make the moral, moral leap beyond slavery. Yeah, well, I, I think um, that the environmental movement, which has this sort of history really in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, have made um, big, huge steps towards it being generally considered that we do need to be more considerate about usage of cars. We do need to recycle more. I mean, there's recycling bins now, um, which weren't around 30 years ago. Um, For example, uh, we recycle glass bottles. Um, We're a bit more um, sort of globally aware. Um, There is certainly still a lot to do, but I would certainly argue that the environmental movement as a social movement has very much placed... um, climate change, environmental um, changes really on the table, on the political agenda. Uh, There have been um, policies and obviously the Paris agreements that unfortunately President Trump has um, taken the US out of um, is there. It's it's on the table at the G20. Um, So while I think there's still a lot to do, I do think that social movements had a huge amount to do with that sort of narrative, that environmentalism being very much um, normalised now today, uh, 40 years from sort of, well, 1999, I think was climate camp and things like that. So, you know, 30 odd, 20 odd years on. Um, So, yeah, um, I, I think they're already doing it. Um, I just think it takes quite a long time for it to sort of filter through to, to everyone. I mean, everyone knows who Greenpeace are. Everyone knows the World Wildlife Fund. Um, we're all sort of more globally aware, I think. Um, yeah. Have you developed, developed or, or, or started to um, devise a base situation that has to be in place in order for social movements to be heard by 
political leaders and political entities. Is is there a a kind of balance of affairs or a situation that has to exist uh, in order for those campaigning voices, and typically they are campaigning voices and they want change in some direction, um, to be acknowledged. And then for those uh, protest slogans and press releases and social media campaigns then to find a place in policy that actually starts to affect what the social movements are, are trying to achieve. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there is a theory in the social movement field called the political opportunity structure, which kind of pretty much describes that actually in terms of um, at any given moment in time, social movements can um, place things on the agenda, but it does require a lot of the time sort of sympathetic elites. So whether that be um, a, a person in in power already, a person part of the government, a person in the opposition in government, particularly in the UK, um, uh, people that are sympathetic in the news media, for example, that pick things up. So there are all this kind of this dialogue, these communications between different um, institutions in, in in the social world that sort of if they converge at the right time um absolutely creates a, a, a big long-term change for, you brought up the the anti-slavery movement earlier and that was that was kind of one of them um at that that particular time there were people campaigning to to do away with slavery and get rid of this um you know moral abomination and people went up and down the country um campaigning there was letters there was um petitions written to parliament and slowly but surely the pamphlets picked it up newspapers uh picked it up and then the people in government people in power started to realize that this actually there was a lot of people that wanted this change so a change was slowly but surely sort of affected. I wonder how much attention moral philosophers pay to uh, the social movements that, that that gather influence and and begin to push a major social change. Because essentially what these, from the examples you've given and the things we've discussed mm-hmm. about, essentially what they're doing is defining the ethics of the future. Because mm-hmm. slavery example, at the time, there was a minority of people who said, right, this is this is a moral abomination and this has got to stop and got to introduce legislation to make it stop. Now, in retrospect, we look back on slavery in the 21st century as exactly that moral, moral abomination. At the time, though, it was just mm. a, few, a, group, a small group of enlightened people. And I imagine that in 100 years time, people will look back on 2017 and say, well, what, you know, what were they thinking of with, with <laughs> climate change? Why were they still burning loads of coal and why did it take them so long to come up with this Paris agreement Mm. and you know that will be the moral abomination that people 100 years hence look back on but I mean my point is are moral philosophers you know are they is this a a kind of really important cog in the wheel of the development of moral moral philosophy um that's a very very good question um I'm not 100% um, sure how closely. Um, actually, thinking about it, I suppose we have the uh, animal rights movement. There are several uh, moral philosophers involved in that, such as, um, oh gosh, now you're testing me, uh, Peter Singer, for one. Um, oh, no, the names are avoiding me now. But, Sorry, um, I'll stick with Peter Singer. He's good enough. Peter Singer, he's a good one. People know him. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are, I think they do attract attention sort of historically. 
uh, depending on who you want to define as as moral philosophers um, or philosophers in general. There's there's people like Karl Marx who was heavily involved in political and social movements of his time and did uh, sort of uh, philosophical um, engagement and treaties on the way in which the the, the working classes in his uh, time were treated and how um, just society really kind of worked at that moment. Foucault, Michel Foucault, who I am um, employing in in my thesis, which kind of brings in the critical theory stuff, he looks at the way in which um, people are governed, people are disciplined, people are punished, people are um, can be radical. Uh, power isn't just for the elites; it's 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 something that it can actually lead to a lot of change in the world. Um, but I think the most salient really would probably be the animal rights movement and people like Peter Singer, who, yeah, 50 years ago, again, you know, it was it was new. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I like that. I like the idea of social movements kind of describing potentially the ethics of the future, because we have the civil rights movement, of course, and the feminist movement um, back in the 60s, uh, which sort of developed social movement theory really um, because people wanted a way to explain this sort of new political phenomena um so they did yeah i I guess you can look back right to the sort of birth of christianity that's kind of the way things have happened somebody has said right Mm. this is the way things should be then then there's a groundswell and then there's a bigger group of people who say yeah this is the way things should be and then there's a law (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then everyone accepts it uh, by and large and if they don't then well there are penalties to pay um yeah so anyway well that's that's the thesis then we've arrived at <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> there we go that, that can be the end that can be the last sentence. <laughs> many thanks again to abigail rhodes and thank you for listening i hope to be back to my usual punctual production schedule next month and hope you can tune in then meanwhile please don't forget to share this podcast with friends and colleagues until august bye for now